0: I'd like to call the uh, committee to order. I want to thank our witnesses for being here, and uh, I think this is a very timely hearing. Um, We have one witness, uh, Senator Cardin, as we both know, that uh, supported the uh, Iran agreement. We have one that opposed it. I understand they just traveled together uh, to the region. They weren't going to broadcast that, but I'm going (laughs) to broadcast it for them. I just met uh, with leaders of one of the countries uh, uh, you visited just a few minutes ago in the office, and i think all of us have uh, been very concerned about uh, about how the agreement is going to affect the region and i think uh, there's no question that uh, our friends in the region believe there is a, a realignment that's taking place uh, relative uh, to how the administration is approaching the region i know that uh, uh, there are a lot of concerns on both sides of the aisle within the committee here as to how that's going to take shape. As a matter of fact, after the agreement was entered into, we had a number of hearings to to ensure that we didn't allow the Iran nuclear agreement to be our policy, if you will, in the Middle East. That uh, that we would leave in a vacuum. Um, and so uh, there are significant concerns. I know one of the uh, you know I'm not going to speak to which country, but. I know there's this debate that's taking place relative to the moderates versus the, you know, the the hardliners, if you will, um, and I'd I'd love to tease out if there really is a significant difference in, in that point of view. Unfortunately, with our help uh, uh, in Iraq, I mean they, I mean that uh, they are achieving all of their goals. Um, this. Uh, This moderation that uh, took place, quote, 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 relative to the Iran deal uh, could be something, uh, as we just discussed a few minutes ago, that's very tactical and yet benefits them uh, hegemonically in the region. And we'd love to hear your points of view. I know both of you made comments that uh, uh, have turned out to be true in our last hearing, again, from differing points of view. So we look forward to this. We wanna make sure that uh, as a committee, we're doing everything we can to deter Iran from doing uh, the kinds of things that we all have feared uh, after receiving uh, the large amounts of money that they obviously are receiving now. A lot has happened. Uh, we're glad to get our hostages uh, back at the same time. Somewhat uh, hazy about some of the transactional issues that occurred relative to that. Uh, they have already violated, uh, violated the ballistic missile uh, uh, issue twice. Um, I was. Despondent that we waited so long. At one point, I guess we realized the hostages were part of the reason we were hesitating, and and understood that, by the way. But um, we have general concerns. We look forward to hearing from you today. I think this again hearing is very timely, and with that, I'll turn it over to Senator Card.
1: Well, Mr. Chairman, first let me uh, thank you for today's hearing. I think it's extremely important. You point out that. Um, uh, we have two witnesses, one who supported the uh, nuclear agreement, the other that opposed it. We have members of this committee who supported it and opposed it. But we all share the same common objective, and that is to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear weapons state and to deal with its nefarious activities, uh, not only in the region, but globally. So I, I look forward to this hearing, but I'm going to start with an apology, as I told the chairman um, uh, privately. Uh, At this moment, uh, the Environment and Public Works Committee is meeting, and several of my bills are on markups, a business meeting uh, that deal with fish and wildlife. So I'm going to have to excuse myself, and and I apologize for that, but the the conflicts here are what they are, and I have to deal with that. But it's been a very busy start to a new year. There's been a lot of activity in the Middle East. Uh, Implementation Day is here. The nuclear agreement is reality. And I think we all need to now acknowledge how we proceed uh, with the nuclear agreement being implemented. It opens up positive opportunities. There's no question about that. And we saw that with the release of our 10 sailors in a uh, dealing with Iran. And to be able to get those sailors released as as easily as we did is certainly uh, a positive development. Uh, The Americans that have been uh, unlawfully held by Iran are now home. That's certainly a very positive development. We all are looking for Iran's participation in the Vienna talks as it relates to Syria, and perhaps we'll have some positive outcome from those discussions. So there are positive uh, consequences to the Americans' involvement with Iran. But we must remember at the end of the day, Iran is still an anti-American, anti-Semitic, revolutionary regime cultivating a network of proxies to challenge stable governments in the region and protect dictators such as Assad in Syria. Uh, It's a regime that continues to violate UN resolutions on ballistic missiles. It's escalating its human rights violations by executions of its own people. It's dangerous rhetoric of Iran's leaders against US partners in the region is causing major, major uh, action and concern. Congress needs to focus on a rigorous oversight and enforcement of the JCPOA. Mr. Chairman, we set the stage for that in this committee's activities in passing the Iran Review Act, which places Congress very much involved in the implementation of any nuclear agreement. There's certain requirements that the administration must comply with, and the, the United States Congress is going to be very much involved Uh, The chairman knows that uh, during the discussion of the Iran agreement uh, that uh, after congressional action, I introduced legislation uh, that deals with trying to strengthen the congressional role on oversight. I was joined by several of our colleagues. It requires strict compliance, and we all want strict compliance, and I would hope that we'll look at ways that we can improve strict compliance. It's aimed at making sure Iran never ever becomes a nuclear weapon state, which is our objective. It also works with our coalition partners recognizing the United States must have the support of our coalition partners. And it strengthens, we need to look at how we can strengthen uh, sanctions if we need to impose them in regards to snapbacks. Uh, We also need to look at Iran's nefarious actions beyond its nuclear weapon ambitions to make sure that we can take appropriate actions in regards to ballistic missile violations, human rights violations, or the support of terrorism. That's particularly important for us to be able to do that, recognizing that Iran now has additional resources, which we hope they'll use for their own economy and their people, but we also know it's very likely that they'll be using that to escalate their international activities uh, in violation of international uh, standards. We also have to be mindful of the security of our partners. There's no question about that. Including uh, Israel, we're now in the process of talking about the next uh, level of the memorandum of understanding. We still have some time, but active discussions are taking place on that, but also the Gulf states. The chairman mentioned this, and I just really want to underscore this. Whether it's real or perceived, there is a concern that U.S. strategic realignment is taking place in the Middle East, and our priorities are changing in the Middle East. That presents challenges for security, U.S. security commitments. And I think we have to be very careful as we go forward to make sure that our allies in the region know that they have a trusted partner in the United States. This region is undergoing unprecedented period of sustained violence, civil conflict, human suffering, and challenges to regional order. In this tinderbox, the danger of misunderstanding and miscommunication can quickly escalate with dangerous consequences. It is why communication and commitment to political processes are so critical, whether it's securing the swift and safe return of our sailors or ensuring commitment of all stakeholders to the Vienna process on the Syrian civil war or obtaining the release of innocent Americans. I want to make one point very clear. There is no military-only solution to any conflict or crisis that we discuss today. In my view, the United States must work in concert with other stakeholders to encourage negotiated political settlements to address these challenges and end the regional conflict and support for legitimate political institutions. This will require political will, investment of resources, and a clear long-term commitment. It also demands a willingness to call out and confront counterproductive destabilizing actions, especially from Iran. There may be opportunities in the aftermath of the JCPOA's implementation for engagement with Iran like the release of U.S. prisoners, but we must remain clear-eyed about Iran's intentions. And I hope that this hearing will help us figure out how we can carry out our commitments to make sure that Iran's activities are understood and the United States can maintain strong international leadership against nefarious actions that can
0: destabilize the region. Thank you, Senator. So with the backdrop that uh, there seems to be no moderation in Iran's activities in the region. Uh, Actually, there seems to be a lot of momentum um, in their activities in the region and the fact that we have uh, allies that are very concerned about our position there. I'd like to introduce our outstanding witnesses there. First witness is Mr. Michael Singh, Managing Director and... Lane Swig, senior fellow at the Washington Institute. We thank you, we thank you for the input you gave us uh, as we were trying to to deal with the actual agreement itself. Our second witness today is Mr. Brian Catullus, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, again representing two very different points of view with similar concerns. We thank you both very much for being here. I think you, uh, having been here before, if you could summarize for about five minutes uh, your major points, uh, your written testimony without objection will be entered into the record. And uh, if we'd start with you, Mr. Singh, I think that would be great.
2: Well, thank you, Chairman Corker, uh, Ranking Member Cardin, and members of the committee. Uh, It's a real pleasure to be here, and it's uh, an honor to be sitting with uh, Brian whom I respect uh, quite a bit. Uh, As I stated when I testified uh, earlier before this committee, the nuclear agreement with Iran is a a flawed agreement. Uh, It does leave Iran with a significant nuclear weapons capability and allow that capability to grow over the life of the agreement. And it does nothing, as we've seen, to constrain Iranian regional policies while offering the broad upfront sanctions relief that we've, we've now offered to Iran. Many of the consequences, as you said, Mr. Chairman, that we feared would flow from the JCPOA, we are now seeing come to pass. Iran hasn't moderated its regional policies. It's continued them. Uh, It hasn't softened its approach towards the United States, but instead we've seen Iran's supreme leader in the aftermath of the JCPOA try to reiterate or reinforce uh, his anti-American bona fides and the ideology of the regime. Uh, And those Iranian moderates uh, have faced mounting attacks from their domestic rivals ahead of Iran's parliamentary elections. Um, And this all comes even before Iran's received the full financial benefit of the deal. And I am happy to talk, Mr. Chairman, about the differences between the so-called moderates and hardliners, uh, perhaps in the question period. Um, That Iranian forces, and especially the IRGC, haven't changed their behavior was illustrated vividly by some of these incidents to which uh, you and Senator Cardin referred, Mr. Chairman. Uh, The arrest of another American citizen in October after the deal was concluded ballistic missile tests uh, in October and December in violation of U.N. Security Council resolutions, Uh, a live-fire exercise in the Gulf in close proximity to U.S. naval vessels and commercial shipping, also in December, Uh, and, of course, a seizure of our U.S. Navy personnel and their uh, their what looked to me like ill treatment uh, earlier this month. Um, The Obama administration has pointed to some of these things, some of these episodes, uh, such as the quick release of those sailors uh, or the recent prisoner swap, as vindications uh, of its policies or evidence that the regime is changing its behavior. I do think, though, that uh, those conclusions are premature at best, and I'll say why. Look, I I don't dismiss the possibility that the role of the Iranian Foreign Ministry, for example, in resolving some of these matters represents a shift in Iran's internal dynamics. This is something I think we need to watch uh, over time uh, to to really prove or to really test. Uh, Nor am I one who downplays the value of engagement in our policy towards Iran or others. In my view, uh, it's a tool that we should use in concert with others, Uh, diplomacy backed by force to achieve our our ends and our objectives. And of course, we know that Iran is perfectly willing to engage when it suits its own interests and its own purposes. However, I'd say that by and large, these incidents merely resolve crises that Iran itself uh, is responsible for creating and wouldn't have developed if Iran had behaved in a responsible manner, like a responsible state. Uh, And we have to be careful, I think, not to fall into the trap of rewarding Iran uh, for that bad behavior in which it engages. Uh, I don't see any sign that, overall, Iran doesn't remain a force for instability in the region, uh, determined to act contrary to American interests and to try to hasten our exit from the region. Um, In addition, as you referred to, Mr. Chairman, the JCPOA has clearly reinforced a pre-existing view among our allies that the United States is disengaging from the region or even embarked, as you said, on a realignment. Uh, in the Middle East. These allies consider Iran one of the top threats they face, and they don't believe that it's a threat that we're seriously prepared to counter based on our actions so far. Uh, The region's vacuums from their perspective, and I think this is right, are not just filled by jihadists, but they're filled also by Iranian forces and Iranian influence. Uh, It's not a problem that that arose with the JCPOA. It's not because of the JCPOA, but it's been exacerbated by the JCPOA and what has followed. Uh, As a result, these allies, as we've seen across the region, are acting increasingly independently uh, in ways that we don't often like, in ways that sometimes we think undermine our interests. So as we move past Implementation Day, as we consider our post-deal Iran policy and post-deal regional policy, uh, I think it's important that we start not with tactics, but as Senator Cardin said, with our objectives. Uh, Despite all of the the tumult that we see in the Middle East, um, though our interests in the region really haven't changed. Nonproliferation, counterterrorism, the free flow of energy and commerce, and some others. Uh, But the obstacles to achieving those interests, I would say, have multiplied, and so we need a new strategy. Um, This isn't really the forum to talk about that full strategy or to to really articulate one, but our approach to Iran after implementation day needs, I think, to be nested in and consistent with a broader strategy that considers all these problems. Um, We need to focus on not just preventing Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon. I think that needs to remain our top priority with respect to Iran but also countering the Iranian threat to regional stability and enhancing the security and capability of our allies. So so I think this will require, among other things, first, fixing the shortcomings of the JCPOA with respect to nonproliferation. And these, in my view, are threefold. Uh, First, the JCPOA isn't strong enough to provide assurance that Iran can't clandestinely develop a nuclear weapon. Second, it leaves unaddressed how we're going to approach Iran in 10 to 15 years when all these restrictions expire. And third, it creates this clear incentive for other states, uh, which I've heard again in the aftermath of the JCPOA, to pursue their own nuclear uh, capabilities. Uh, And in my written testimony, you see more details on these things. We also need to move to counter the Iranian threat to regional stability. And and this has to, I think, begin with a more serious effort, uh, again, both diplomatically and militarily, to address the problem of Syria, Um, and not just to solve the conflict there, to end the conflict there but to impede Iran's ability to use Syria to project power into the Levant uh, as well as a campaign to hinder the malign activities of the IRGC and also the other Iranian proxies we see operating there. Uh, I think we also need to take steps to more explicitly counter Iran's anti-access area denial A2AD strategy in the Gulf, uh, which we've seen vividly on display in recent months, and reassert our commitment to freedom of navigation in the Gulf. And then finally, just to end, we need to repair and expand our regional alliances, as I think you've seen, Senator. It's tempting to view foreign policy as a problem-solving exercise to sort of focus on how do we end the conflicts. Uh, But sometimes a dollar invested in allies who aren't yet problems is a sounder investment than a a dollar invested in solving those conflicts. Um, I think it needs to begin with a more concerted effort to understand and respond to our allies' priorities and needs. Uh, And as we work with them to address those needs, I think it needs to be multilateral. Uh, So for example, one thing I heard when I was out in the region was that the tens of billions of dollars that uh, the GCC states are spending on military procurement, those those aren't coordinated, those aren't complementary. And I think that we need to do a better job of that. Uh, And of course, our allies will be more secure uh, and more resilient if they have responsive security, political, and economic institutions. And I think we can help uh, build those. Um, so for more details, I just refer you to my written testimony. And I look forward to your questions.
0: Thank you, and uh, Mr. Cotullis, I should have thanked you also
3: for your counsel
0: uh, during the period of time we were looking at the agreement. We thank you for being back and look forward to your comments.
3: Great. Uh, thank you, Chairman Corker, and I want to thank you and uh, Ranking Member Cardin for extending this invitation to me. I wanted to start uh, with my bottom line upfront uh, assessment that The nuclear agreement at a time of widespread regional stability has produced very important and tangible benefits for U.S. and international security. It has severely restricted Iran's ability to produce a nuclear weapon in the next decade and perhaps beyond. It has uh, produced concrete results, as we've seen from the IEA's certifications, um, in terms of actions uh, with Iran dismantling its centrifuges and shipping low-enriched uranium stockpiles out of the country. And it's established an inspection regime that substantially increases our ability to know what Iran has been doing and is doing. So compared to where we were five, and especially 10 years ago, when Iran was moving forward without few impediments, we are in a much stronger position. The deal is far from perfect, of course, and the value of the deal depends on Iran's continued adherence to its obligations, to its terms. And as uh, I think we all agree, the United States needs to be focused on what we can do to ensure that the international community um, uh, makes sure that Iran sticks by the deal. I wanted to highlight three main points in my um, presentation here today, and my written testimony has a more complete analysis. One, I wanted to provide an assessment, a brief snapshot of where we are in the Middle East as 2016 starts. Second, uh, four things that I think we can expect in a period of uncertainty in the next year as the JCPOA is implemented. And then I'll conclude with complimentary remarks to what Michael has offered here uh, in terms of what the US should do next, some recommendations. So so briefly, my assessment of Middle East strategic dynamics. Um, The JCPOA has not obviously abated any of the uh, regional tensions as we've seen in the um, instability between Iran and Saudi Arabia just in the past few weeks. Region-wide, there's a competition for influence between these two major powers that has weakened the region's overall state system. States like Iraq, Syria, and Yemen have become arenas for this competition as their governing authorities have broken down in struggles for power and legitimacy. This collapse of state authority, I wanna highlight in my testimony because I think it's central to the question of where we go in the Middle East more broadly. In this context of regional fragmentation and strong divisions, Um, It's my assessment that it's highly unlikely that one country, including Iran or Saudi Arabia, will be able to dominate the landscape. Uh, The regional security structure, as it is today, places limitations on what uh, regional powers like Saudi Arabia and Iran can achieve. A more likely and, I think, more complicated threat is the continued breakdown of state authority within the region, something that could accelerate if the tensions between Saudi Arabia and Iran remain high. So that's the first point. It's not a very optimistic picture of the region. It's one I think we need to keep in mind as we discuss the Iran nuclear deal. Second, possible regional moves as the JCPOA uh, moves forward this year. Number one, proxy wars in places such as Yemen and Syria are likely to continue, alongside sporadic diplomatic efforts to reach these settlements. The success of those diplomatic efforts will depend heavily on the connection between the military balance of power on the ground and the diplomacy. Number two, we can expect and we can see from the last six months Iranian bad behavior unrelated to terrorist, uh, to, to, excuse me, nuclear issues will continue. Uh, Tehran will continue to support terrorist groups like Hezbollah, uh, as well as perhaps conduct cyber attacks against its enemies. Third, the ongoing conventional military arms race in the Middle East appears likely to continue, even after decades in which, after a decade in which Gulf countries have purchased tens of billions of dollars. And fourth, a bit of a wild card, but I think it's important to keep in mind, the sharp sharp drop in oil prices have placed pressures on all of the countries in the region, including Saudi Arabia and Iran. And I think all of these factors are important um, things to expect in the next few years. Let me conclude briefly with a summary of what I think we should do with U.S. policy moving forward. The first point, and I think it's important to stress, is that the United States remains the unrivaled power in the region. As you mentioned, Chairman, Mike and I were just in the region. We go regularly. And despite all of the talk about U.S. disengagement, no country possesses the broad networks of relationships with countries in the region, the security capabilities, the ability to shape dynamics through diplomacy that the United States has. Not Russia. Russia, I think, has punched far above its weight in its recent engagement in Syria, but uh, does not have the potential that we have. Not China. Uh, Even though China has increased economic and energy interests in the region, um, they don't have the networks of relationships that we have, the capacities. The question we have, that you have, we all have before us, is how are we willing to use these capacities? And very briefly, and in sum, I think there's five things we need to focus on uh, in the next year. One, we've all said it, the strict implementation of the JCPOA. Congress has an important role in this, and I think it needs to continue to play that role. Two, and we can talk in detail about this, continue to respond to Iran's bad behavior, whether it's ballistic missile tests, support to terrorist groups, its efforts to undermine state authorities in the region. Three, and I highlight this because I think it's been forgotten, we need to continue to elevate Iran's human rights record and its record in how it deals with its own people in American policy. It's important, I think, for the long-term challenge in, in Iran. Fourth, and I've said this before in testimony on the ISIS challenge is that the United States needs to present a much more coordinated security approach uh, to the region. I mentioned just a minute ago that we have a deep military footprint, a broad array of security partners. It's my assessment that if you add up everything we do in terms of bilateral relationships with key allies like Iran, uh, like, like Israel, like uh, the GCC states, Um, All of the bilateral security efforts we have with them, combined with the international coalition to counter ISIS, and combined with what has been promised post-Iran nuclear deal, none of these have been properly synchronized just yet. If I were sitting in your seat, I would be asking tough questions to the Defense Department, to the White House, about how all of these different pieces will sync together. And the fifth, I think, uh, and I'll close here, is that we need to continue to test the possibilities for de-escalation, de-confliction, conflict resolution in places like Syria and Yemen, but we should not be naive about it. We should be clear-eyed about who we're dealing with. Um, um, So in conclusion, the JCPOA is far from a perfect deal. But given the realistic alternatives we have today, it is a strong framework for the United States and the international community to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. But I think Mike and I agree, I think we all agree, we need a much more coherent, much more assertive approach that deals with these regional security tensions. Thank you.
0: Thank you, I'm gonna start it off with a few questions and maybe reserve some of my time for for, uh, interacting as we move along. Your fourth point of five that you just uh, outlined, Mr. Kutoulos, I think, um, speaks to the fact that I think many of us uh, on both sides of the aisle have looked at uh, our policy towards the Middle East recently as being more transactional. And I think the purpose of these hearings is to figure out a way to, to apply that pressure appropriately to the administration to have something that's uh, much more coordinated and certainly of longer view. So let me, let me just follow up a little bit on that and say, uh, ask you the question. So our allies, um, our friends in the region, our traditional friends, uh, have the perception that, uh, that we are disengaging and potentially realigning, as both of you have alluded to. Um, is that real or not? I mean, is that perception not reality, or is that perception reality from your perspective?
3: excuse me, I think the perception is strong. I don't think it's the reality when you look at the networks of relationships, the footprint, the fact that when we were in the region, we were uh, building uh, military installations and hearing about this that were gonna last for decades. Uh, That perception exists in part, I think, because of uh, sometimes the language we use, the body language that we have and how we engage with partners in the region. And the main point I would say, and just to, to emphasize it a bit more, is that I know we're discussing with Israel, Um, an MOU about long-term security, and I think that's important to complete and complete it quickly. There's also a discussion about um, our relationship with the GCC post-Camp David, uh, and I think the follow-up, I think, needs to be accelerated on all of that. Plus, we have the normal relationships that we have that are long-standing. My concern is that all of these need to be synchronized towards a greater uh, set, set of objectives that include deterring Iran's Uh, negative presence in the region, but also being clear with some of our partners when they act in ways that have led to the rise of non-state terrorist groups or have led to the erosion of state authorities, we often don't have that quiet, candid conversation. So the two things I think we need to do to erode this perception of disengagement um, is not move episodically from an Israel-Palestine peace process to a Syria uh, attempt to um, resolve the conflict to moving through JCPOA implementation. I think we need a much more holistic strategy, and this is where I think Mike and I agree quite a lot, that states are long-term objective and states that we're going to stay there as a partner for the long term. Again, uh, restating what I just said before, if you look at all of the other outside powers, Russia, China, others, they don't have the potentials and the relationships that we have. We're just not using it in ways that I think um, are as forceful and assertive as I think they could be.
0: Let, let me move to another point because I'm, I'm worried about the time. Um, we saw where, first of all, uh, there's no question, the Iranian, the, you know, the leaders of Iran are moving quickly to implement. I mean, I think this has been implemented uh, probably two months more quickly than we thought. Uh, it was thought that the moderates were rushing to, to make this happen so that it would affect the economy in a positive way prior to the election. And yet, we saw over the last couple of days where, uh, quote, most of the moderates that would be part of the, the group, if you will, that were running to, to actually select the next Supreme Leader uh, were actually disqualified. Uh, I think only 1% of them that had put their names forward uh, were qualified, if you will, to actually run, which certainly speaks to the fact that the hardliners uh, uh, still, it, it appears, uh, have an outsized role in, de- in determining the direction. So number, number one, uh, do you agree with that and do you see things not going in the direction that many thought it would that were for this agreement and a change of, of uh, if you will, how Iran conducted its business? And number two, is there any real difference between the moderates inside Iran and the hardliners Relative to how they view the the activities that they should be undertaking to continue uh, To to achieve their goals if you will in the region
2: well, Senator on the I'll start with the second part and then sort of lead into the first uh, My own view of the sort of different camps in Iran. It's obviously very complicated, but to boil it down I would say you've got one camp uh, and, and I should preface this by saying I think both of these camps have as their first objective uh, regime survival. Uh, they want the system to survive. They don't want to see democratic change. They don't want to see a fundamentally different system in Iran. I think the first camp, both,
0: both moderates and hardliners, want to continue to have a supreme leader like like a Khomeini in leading the country.
2: The, the regime system. That's right. There, there are those I think who who don't want to see that. Uh, those are the people who are, though, largely you know under house arrest or who are, who are in jail and so forth uh, in, in, in Iran. I think the the sort of what we would consider the moderate or pragmatic camp led by President Rouhani, I think these folks think that in order to survive, the regime needs to adapt, uh, needs to change. You know, and that change is largely sort of economic and social and so forth. Um, Whereas I think there's a sort of hardline camp uh, that thinks that to survive, the regime needs to sort of go back, uh, to purify, uh, to go back to the 1979 values of economic self-sufficiency, exporting the revolution, and so forth. Uh, these are fundamentally opposed worldviews, and you could think of it almost like China in the 1970s, Senator.
0: And, and do they, do the, if you don't mind, the, do the moderates believe they should export the revolution also?
2: I think the moderates don't, uh, don't necessarily emphasize that, but I think that their regional strategy ultimately is basically no, no different than the sort of hardline regional strategy. I think it's about projecting Iranian power. It's asymmetric power. It's not necessarily conventional power. It's about pushing the United States out and sort of taking what they see as Iran's rightful place uh, as the preeminent power in the region. Um, So so I don't think that their conflict really is over the issues that matter most to us is, I guess, the way I would put that. Uh, It's not over the nuclear issue. It's not over regional security issues. It's more over the character of Iran itself, uh, economic issues, social issues, and so forth. Um, And that's why I think it's often we we make the mistake of saying, well, who's our guy and who's on our side? I don't think that's the right way to think about it. as far as your first question so, goes. So,
0: so if I could, they both have exactly the same goals relative to the region. They have differing views as to how to strengthen their ability to make that happen.
2: I think that's right. So I, I think that you, you wouldn't see, for example, a big difference between those two camps on, you know, what should Iran's role in the region be? What should the United States' role in the region be? Um, what, what should their policy in Syria be, uh, in Iraq be, and so forth? I don't see big debates over that. There are debates over what are the right tactics to use, what's the role of diplomacy, can you deal with the West uh, diplomatically, and so forth. And you see those things very clearly you know, in some of these incidents that we've uh, had recently. But that doesn't mean the ultimate objective is different, I would say.
3: Mr. Katulis. If I just may supplement, because I agree with uh, all of what Mike said there, is that I think the, the broader landscape, the longer term, if you look at the demographic changes that are likely to happen in Iran, the social and the economic changes that may occur, And again, not overnight, not before the next election. Um, This is why I highlighted the need for the US to continue to have a stronger voice than I think it's had in the last few years about representing the basic uh, rights and interests of Iranian people. There's a new generation that I think quite likely, at some point in the next 10 years, there's going to be some sort of shift and change. And today we see a calcified political leadership that is trying to maintain its grip by disqualifying all of these candidates and things like this. But I suspect in Iran, as I think in Saudi Arabia as well, these are societies that are gonna see tremendous stresses on their economy, on their social system, and we need to prepare ourselves in terms of articulating uh, more consistently a voice that says we stand by the Iranian people when they're abused by their own uh, government, when their rights are not respected. And I think this broader landscape, the longer game, is something that we've lost a little bit of sight of in the, f- in the past few years.
0: Thank you both. Senator Menendez.
4: Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for your testimony and your insights to the committee at various times. Uh, uh, and Mr. Chairman, I just want to uh, get from you. I, I assume that at some point you are seeking administration witnesses to yes. talk about the aftermath of yeah. uh, the plan thing. Yeah. Um, so, Without relitigating the, uh, the nature of the agreement, because we live in a reality that the agreement has passed, I do think taking stock of certain things is important as a compass point moving forward. Uh, and. Uh, I'm not surprised that the Iranians met their initial implementation because that was the essence of what was necessary to get uh, the multi-billion dollar relief that was necessary. And some of us who have a problem with the agreement and voted against it is because it's not in the short term that we didn't think that they would live up to it. It's in the longer process where they can realize their goals just by following the, uh, the outline and the framework of the JCPOA. If they have the patience to do so, they will get to where they want to be. Uh, And so that is a concern uh, for us. And certainly, uh, can it be argued that 12 months is better than three months, which is where we were at breakout? Yeah. Uh, Is it uh, great that Iran received billions of dollars in relief Uh, concerning about how they use that money, which I'd like to explore with you? Um, Regional adventurism, whether in Syria or Iran and Lebanon, Yemen, or elsewhere, that that continues. Um, I have, I rejoice in the Americans that are now home safely, but I think the important questions of U.S. policy have to be determined as, what are we doing in terms of bartering for innocent Americans, for convicted spies, and others in the United States? What is the global message there? Because if we are going down a pathway, as we did in the exchange in Cuba, in which one person was convicted of conspiracy to commit murder uh, and gets released, and in this case, um, we have uh, seven Iranians involved in all manners of conspiracy and material support to a state sponsor of terrorism, um, and 14 more who get clemency. The question is, what's our policy? Is our policy now to exchange for innocent Americans uh, those who have been convicted in violation uh, of U.S. law, uh, and in some degree, to what degree of conviction are we going to look at in terms of who is exchangeable or not? I think it's important to raise that question, at least in the presence of the absence of hostages, except for Mr. Levinson, obviously, who we still don't know what is happening in, in his case, but so that it's not about a person but about a policy. And I think that's an important one looked at here. And then I, I, I look forward to understanding the $1.7 billion dollars paid by American taxpayers uh, for a agreement that took place with a different Iranian government uh, that was ultimately uh, in line with the United States and for which, uh, at the end of the day, I cannot imagine this Iranian government wanting the same things that that Iranian government wanted in terms of the military elements uh, that were being sought. So uh, I look at this and I say that, and then I see the missile violations, and I think a a rather soft response to them. Um, And I I think that's alarming. I, I, I had called upon the administration to use a robust response in the absence of the Security Council doing anything. Um, I think we've got a soft response to that, and I'm concerned about that. Um, and I see the, the Iranians, you know, Revolutionary Guard, you know, obviously, you know, not a force who wants to moderate the positions of Iran with the United States, uh, propagandizing uh, American uh, military personnel on their knees across the world. So, a little bit of stock uh, from my perspective, at least to a compass moving forward. So, I would like to ask both of you, you know, in the New York Times interview with uh, uh, Tom Friedman in July of last year, uh, President Obama said that, quote, the truth of the matter is that Iran will be and should be a regional power, will be and should be a regional power. Now, I think our friends and allies in the region heard this, And they're putting it together with the following observations, that Iran, having violated the international will for well over a decade, results in negotiations in which those negotiations accomplish or nears accomplish many of their goals, uh, and that others in the region see it as an existential threat to their uh, their own interests and their own security. So, Is it fair to say that we're going through a very difficult time in the region in which our partners, our traditional partners, are wondering what the end game here and are going to be acting increasingly more independently, at times maybe even in conflict with what we would see as our own interests because they've taken the view that if the President of the United States says that Iran should be a regional power, that that is in conflict with everything they fear about Iran being a regional power.
2: Uh, Senator, I, I, would, I would agree with your statement. Um, and I, I think that the, that type of statement, it feeds the fears amongst our allies that we are either disengaging from the region and sort of just leaving them to their own devices. And, and you're right, Senator, what that encourages them to do is to form these ad hoc blocks that we've seen forming in the region to jockey amongst themselves to, to accomplish their goals because that's what they need to do sometimes using methods and tools which, uh, which, which we find alarming, frankly. Um, and there is, there is no sort of real winner in that contest because none of them will, will really rise uh, above and impose regional order. It also, it also frankly, um, comes across very badly in the region because of the way that Iran asserts its power in the region. Uh, it's not through conventional military means, it's not through diplomacy and so forth, but it's through subversion of sovereign governments in places like Lebanon, in places like Yemen, in places like uh, Bahrain, and so forth. Uh, it's it's by feeding proxy forces, it's through asymmetric power, it's by doing things which are very dangerous to the fabric uh, of the regional order such as it is in the Middle East. Um, and I think that, that that's also another reason why it strikes the wrong chord, because Iran is not behaving like any anything we would consider a responsible power. Um, so, so certainly you do hear that when you go to the region, uh, and I do think, frankly, that that feeling of disengagement, which you were asking about before, Chairman Corker, uh, is very real. Um, even though we have an extensive presence on the ground, because they, they don't see that we share their interests, that we share their sort of concerns in the region, and they don't feel as though, at the highest level, at the strategic level, there is that sort of uh, there is that sort of coordination and that sort of meeting of the minds between us and our allies any longer.
3: If I may add. Um I think these concerns and the question you ask about uh, partners wondering what our end game is, this has been a problem for U.S. policy for more than a decade. Uh, It's in my view that one of the consequences of the 2003 Iraq War was we ended a policy of dual containment of Iran and Iraq. And this actually helped facilitate and contributed to the rise of Iran's power in the region. It also, I think, Uh, had downsides in terms of the state structures. I mentioned this in my opening testimony about the coherence and the strength of state structures. So to your question of what should be our next steps, um, I don't disagree with much of what you said, your concerns about the missile tests, the questions about the prisoner um, hostage uh, releases. All of these questions I think need to be asked of this administration, but the biggest question I think we all need to ask is where do we wanna be 10 years from now um, in the Middle East. We had a policy of dual containment of Iran and Iraq. Now the Middle East is in chaos. Uh, the state system, I think, is, is, has been weakened. I think two fundamentals I think we need to do is help try to strengthen and clarify the nature of the state system while remaining true to our values. And this is why I think it's important in looking at the nature of regimes like Iran, like even some of our partners who don't like Iran in the region. We need to have, if not public talks, quiet talks about their actions in the region, who they support in terms of their own proxies and non-state actors. And going back to my central point is that the U.S. still has no rival in the Middle East. The fact that the foreign ministers of Saudi Arabia and Iran are having dueling op-eds in the New York Times uh, I think speaks volumes about how important uh, the leaderships of those countries view the United States. The question is, I think our reticence, uh, our reluctance to, to engage as strongly and as, as assertively as I think we should have is in part born out of some of the mistakes of the previous decade, and I think uh, all of us, analysts, leaders here in the Senate, need to think about a new role in the Middle East for the United States where it's not us sending tens of thousands of troops and these straw men arguments that you often hear from people who don't want to do anything about Syria, uh, but it's how do we actually partner up with those Uh, most reliable and capable partners in the region. Israel, Jordan, uh, the United Arab Emirates, uh, the Kurds. There is, uh, I think, the makings of a coalition that one could form. And in fact, if you look at the anti-ISIL coalition, We've got a lot of people on that team. The question is, Are we actually, do we have a game plan? And I think the answer, quite frankly, is we've got episodic engagement uh, that's trying to advance the ball on different pieces, but we don't have that bigger picture of how do we stabilize the Middle East and help integrate it uh, with the rest of the world as a much more functioning region of the world.
4: Well, and, and if I just have a comment, Mr. Chairman, I have a bunch of other questions, but I'll wait for the next round. I totally agree with you about the dual containment and what we did in Iraq, which is one of the reasons I voted against the Iraq War when I was in the House of Representatives, including that spending a lot of time looking at intelligence information, I saw no evidence of weapons of mass destruction. And so I don't send America's sons and daughters needlessly into a war of choice versus a war of necessity. Having said that, uh, in the aftermath of that, it seems to me that by what we have done with Iran, is that we have further confused uh, the reality of what our policy is going to be in the region, because we didn't have a parallel track that many of us were advocating for to think about if you get this agreement, what is going to be set alongside with it so that you deal within the region. So now we are having unlocked the resources, given Iran some sense of legitimacy in the international order, even though from my perspective it hasn't fully earned it. Uh, and it is a moment in which we are way behind uh, the the clock here in terms of engaging. We still may have the most significant presence in the region, but that significance means nothing if at the end of the day you are not asserting it and pursuing a plan of action pursuant to the national interests and security of the United States. Thank you. Senator Gardner.
5: Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you both for being here today. And uh, I want to follow up a little bit on what Senator Menendez was talking about. Um, the, the coalition, Mr. Cthulhu, I think, that you talked about of finding uh, allies in the region who have a common interest to achieve uh, solutions to present stability to the region, I think uh, uh, Israel, Saudi Arabia, you mentioned some others, uh, were all nations, though, that as this uh, agreement was moving forward had great concern with the destabilizing uh, possibilities that went along with this kind of engagement. And so if, in the interview, as the President had stated that Senator Benitez pointed out, uh, a regional power. If Iran is able to to reach that, to achieve that goal, what does a future of this uh, regional power of Iran uh, mean for our allies in the region who view this as destabilizing to to their futures? Mr. Singh.
2: Well, look, I, I think that what, what Iran would like to see in the region uh, is, of course, we'd like to see itself preeminent, uh, and we'd like to see uh, itself able to project power uh, even more than it can today through the Levant uh, and against what it considers foes, like Israel, for example, or Saudi Arabia. It would also like to see us out of the region. It doesn't want to see freedom of navigation for the U.S. Navy in the Persian Gulf, for example, uh, or the Arabian Gulf. Uh, it doesn't want to see uh, American forces uh, in the Middle East. Um, it, in a sense, Iran shares with countries like, I would say, Russia and China to an extent this, this broader goal of wanting to see uh, a fundamental reshaping of the international order, f- to see the, the role of the United States uh, decline. Um, And you can see this in repeated uh, comments by Iran's supreme leader and other regime leadership.
5: So, Mr. Cthulhu, if you want to respond to to that and just, uh, I think, this notion that a regional power, wanting the United States to leave, what that means to Israel, how that could be in any way, shape, or form stabilizing.
3: Well, I think um, what we need to do is to be clear first, as I was uh, trying to highlight in my opening remarks, um, that I think there'll be inherent natural limits to how far any power in the region itself can go. Iran has high aspirations, but as we see in their support to the Assad regime and the high costs of the Syria conflict, as we see in the engagements in Yemen, the counter-reaction from regional forces, for every action there'll be a reaction. And this uh, is the point I want to try to drill down, is that in this context of Iran's aspirations in Saudi Arabia, I was in Riyadh last month, and you hear them, talking a much more assertive game. And they announced a Muslim coalition against terrorism. It did not include Iran or Iraq or other key uh, countries there. You see countries that are moving to exercise their own self-interest, I think in part because they see a reticence on the part of the United States to get engaged. But what I hear when I talk to our friends in Israel, in Jordan, uh, in some of the Gulf countries, is that if the US wanted to serve more like a, a quarterback role, uh, we're in football season here, uh, that. We don't have to run all the well, plays. They say go
5: Broncos, I'm not sure.
3: So. <laughs> yeah, we don't have to run all the plays, but they're really still looking for some sort of game plan beyond what I think has been this tactical reactive crisis management mode, except for certain episodes. Of course, the Iran nuclear deal was one episode, the attempted negotiations on Israel-Palestine process, the, the Syria uh, peace process, if it, if it comes together, is another one. I think what we need, and this is where I'm more pragmatic about it, is we really truly need uh, a bipartisan consensus here at home that agrees on the U.S. is going to be a little bit more assertive here. That doesn't mean we're going to reinvade countries and occupy them with uh, no end in sight. But the important thing, I think, is that the tools that we want to put into the game, the things that uh, Mike and I heard, I think, on this last visit of some of our partners want us to help them more in the conflict in Yemen. I think we need to have that conversation, but we need to have it realistically to understand are what these partners doing, moving towards a sustainable resolution of that conflict, one that marginalizes extremist forces, whether it's non-state groups, like ISIS or the Houthis, or state groups like Iran, which I think is a very malign strategic actor in the region. And that's what I think we're missing right now, is sort of that broader game plan. Um, and, and I do, again, I do believe that if we're willing to use those resources and build a uh, bipartisan consensus for it, we could actually have a, a positive impact.
2: If I could just add one thing, Senator. I I don't disagree with what Brian said. I agree there's a limit, really, to what Iran can achieve. You're you're not talking about a classically powerful country. As I said, they use proxies, asymmetric power. They've struggled in Syria. Um, But they don't need to succeed uh, to create big problems for us. I mean, if if the Iranians weren't helping Assad in Syria, I mean, it's the IRGC, it's those Shiite proxies from Pakistan and Afghanistan, it's Hezbollah. Uh, I don't think Assad could have fought the war that he's fought. And that, in turn, has created that vacuum. You see in eastern Syria, which ISIS has taken hold of, and so it's not as though Iran likes ISIS or is allied with ISIS. But Iranian actions have helped to create those vacuums and break down those state institutions, which allows such groups to thrive. Um, and then the reactions by even by folks who are allied with us sometimes then further you know sort of uh, create problems that we think are not not good for our interests, right? So sometimes the reaction too uh, ultimately doesn't help American interests in the region, and that's as a result of Iran sort of reaching. For this power even if they can't ultimately achieve it
5: and, and as as the, our, our allies act and i think you've both identified ways that they may act uh, that in, in manners that aren't uh, in the interest of the united states as they are uh, expressing or showing or, or expressions of concern about the united states uh, willingness and commitment to the region uh, i think we also have to develop the strategy that we talked about which i think as secretary gates said in a recent business insider article he talked about uh, working with our allies, both Arab and Israeli in the region, to counter Iranian meddling, support of terrorism, and other activities. So what, over the next year, do we need to lay out to those allies uh, in concrete terms uh, to make sure that we have that strategy in place? You both have identified steps and strategies, but what uh, concrete in the next year should the United States lay out?
3: Well, if I could start, and maybe Mike can add. First, the sort of actions we took um, last year when we interdicted weapon shipments that were going into Yemen, uh, was an important, you know, actions speak louder than words, and that was an important action, and if we continue to do that, I know the case of rearm and supply of Hezbollah and Syria is very complicated, it's tied up with the Iraq uh, airspace and the challenges there, but working that issue where we demonstrate uh, with partners and our closest partners, including Israel, that we're, we're stopping these shipments, uh, we're, we're stopping Iran from Um, Moving forward, um, arms embargoes against some of these proxies, which uh, uh, I think have been undertaken. Uh, A very robust implementation of the Camp David discussions, uh, moving forward with what uh, what types of security cooperation we'll have, but importantly, how do we synchronize that with the discussion that we have uh, ongoing with Israel to ensure its qualitative military. Uh, edge. Those are, I think, some of the tools that, again, going back to a central point I have here, is that no other country has the breadth of relationships that we have from Qatar to Turkey to Saudi Arabia, countries that are often at odds with one another. Let's use those tools to actually um, uh, disrupt uh, Iran's malign influence and also use it quietly to to talk about the proxies that other countries in the region support as well. Interesting.
2: Look, I I agree with Brian. I, I think that the answer to your question really has three parts. I mean, one is our own posture in the region uh, and how we respond to what is an emerging and and will be a strengthening A2AD strategy by Iran, uh, potentially with the help, for example, of of China or Russia with some of the the military aspects of that. Um, I'm not sure that right now I'm, I'm not an expert on this question, but I'm not sure that right now our posture in the Gulf is the right posture to deal with that. Um, And and you have to to bear in mind that when there are pictures around the world of uh, Iranian forces taking our sailors captive, even if they're quickly released, those pictures have a strategic impact uh, in the Gulf, in the Middle East, and beyond, um, when you see those live fire exercises in which Iran engages in the Gulf. These are the types of activities in which Iran engages. So maybe we could beat them in a conventional war. um, But we also need to be able to address these types of uh, more unconventional actions that Iran takes. The second part is what we actually do to counter Iran's actions uh, around the region. To me, that starts with Syria. I think we just need to get much more serious about uh, our policy in Syria, rather than sort of standing back, as we've been doing for now too many years. Um, And there's a whole bulleted list in my written testimony, including things like a financial campaign against the IRGC, um, stronger measures against Iran's missile program. And I would say, just in response to something Senator Menendez said, it's true that the Iranians have fulfilled those initial requirements, as far as we can see, under the JCPOA. That's in part because we set a very low bar. Uh, The resolution of the PMD issue uh, was pro forma. Uh, We didn't ask for anything on the missile question. That's part of the reason they were able to do it, is we didn't ask what they couldn't do or wouldn't do. Um, And then the third element of that is the regional security element uh, and how we uh, bolster the security of our allies. And I think it has to start with, at the strategic level, understanding what their priorities are, like Yemen, for example, having that conversation, responding to their needs, because that's what allies do. Um, it has to um, involve multi-year sort of agendas for their procurement and training, and then it has to involve coordinating all of that, mm-hmm. so that you don't have sort of the UAE over here doing this and Saudi Arabia doing something else, but you have a sort of a block, a unified front that can confront both Iran as well as jihadists and other threats that we face.
5: Thanks. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
6: Thank you. Yes, sir,
0: Senator Kent
6: Thank you, Chairman Corker, uh, thank you for holding this hearing, and thank you uh, for the, the skilled and insightful uh, testimony we've received uh, from both witnesses so far. Uh, well, here we are uh, on the other side of Implementation Day, uh, and as has been reviewed, Iran has taken uh, several important, significant steps uh, to uh, delay their ability to quickly develop a nuclear weapons capability, and I am relieved by the long overdue release of five Americans uh, from Uh, unjust Iranian custody and the steps the administration has taken to sanction individuals and entities that uh, were involved in supporting Iran's ballistic missile program. But I am deeply concerned that where we are now is that Iran has tens of billions of dollars of additional resources uh, and that despite uh, a lot of important efforts and a lot of valuable progress made through the JCPOA, uh, I think our responsibility uh, working together to deter Iran uh, and contain Iran is more urgent and more difficult than ever before. Um, so it is my hope that we will achieve uh, the view that Mr. Catullus offered in the outset of a, more, of a more coherent and more assertive approach in the region. I appreciate your recognizing the interdiction of uh, a weapon shipment to the Houthis. Uh, in pressing the administration over and over for more information and more details about interdictions of weapons flow or funding flow, I, I am repeatedly told we can brief you on that in a classified setting. And I say, that's very helpful, but it would be more helpful if our allies in the region and my constituents and our country were briefed on this in open setting. And I understand the tension, but we need to show what we are actually doing. Saying is good, doing is better. Uh, I'm also interested in your views on how we can strengthen our regional allies and demonstrate that our policy is one of containment of Iran and that our attitude towards them remains one of suspicion. They remain a nuclear threat because the knowledge of how to enrich uranium and produce a weapon is widely distributed amongst their technical uh, and engineering staff, and we will have to stay on this for decades to come. So if I could first, to both of you, um, many members of Congress, including my colleague Senator Menendez, have called for the swift renewal of the Iran Sanctions Act, uh, which expires at the end of this calendar year. Uh, What's your opinion on the renewal of the ISA? Uh, What do you think would be the views of our P5-plus-1 partners, uh, and what do you think its consequences uh, would be? Uh, And then second, if you'd speak uh, to the unfrozen revenues, uh, the Iranian uh, assets that have been held in banks around the world and are now going to be flowing back to them, how do you expect Iran to use these dollars? Uh, And are there mechanisms by which you believe we can track uh, and report to the world – uh, their deposits in the Central Bank of Iran, their distribution into the Iranian system, and be more effective at interdicting uh, cash flows to their uh, terrorist proxies in the region. Mr. Singh.
2: Um, well, thank you, Senator Kudes. Um On the renewal of the Iran Sanctions Act, um, I, I do think it's important to do. I think it's important that we be in a position to actually execute the snapback of sanctions if it comes to that. Um, I do think that, at this stage, the concern that our allies would have about doing it now that we're past implementation day is probably a lot less than would have been pre-implementation day. Um, I, I think now it's unlikely that renewing the ISA would unravel the deal somehow. Um, I do think, though, it's important, too, that uh, we have other penalties in place to punish Iran short of full snapback, and that we also enforce the sanctions which are on the books, which, which you yourself have said, Senator. Um, So so I think that it's it's one element of what needs to be a broader sort of look at sanctions. And we also have to look at the ways that Iran is going to try to get around those existing sanctions, because I expect them to come up with new ways to circumvent sanctions as they have in the past. Um, On the question of the unfrozen revenues, um, we've heard a lot about how Iran will or won't use the revenues. I think only uh, Iran knows the answer to this question fully, and maybe only the supreme leader of Iran. Um, But I'll tell you, my view is, under President Rouhani, Uh, In his first budget, there was an increase in military and security spending. Um, And I would expect that Iran's regional priorities are sufficiently important that it's going to use some of this money on regional priorities. Um, We've seen a decline, for example, in the funding that Iran has given to Hezbollah in recent years. It wouldn't surprise me if that went back up. wouldn't surprise me if some of this money went into uh, defending the Assad regime uh, or into Hamas or Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Um, And that's for two reasons. One is simply that these are important issues to Iran. They've shown that time and time again, when we would have thought it would be prudent for them to develop their own country, they've instead spent the money on a nuclear program or terrorist groups or things which don't benefit Iranians. Um, and second, from a macroeconomic perspective, there's a reason that you wouldn't necessarily want to immediately repatriate $50 uh, billion or what, whatever the exact figure is because of the sort of inflationary or currency effects that might have. Um, so I, I do expect they'll use some on, on things which we find very concerning. Um, we do, I think, have tools uh, at the Treasury Department uh, to try to track these things, to try to interdict these things. But, frankly, some of the removal of the sanctions on the banks uh, and the now the much more permissive environment will, I think, complicate that. It will be a harder task. Uh, and we'll need to be quite sure that banks around the world understand that we're still determined to enforce the sanctions which are on the books uh, and make sure they understand what those sanctions are. And so we'll need to be engaged in, I would say, as heavy an educational campaign, an enforcement campaign, as we were in, say, the 2007-2008 period when sanctions were ramping up.
6: Thank you, Mr. Coutoles.
2: Just really quickly, because I think uh, Mike covered much of your questions, but
3: the one question on the P5 plus one partners and how they might respond to uh, renewal of sanctions, This is where diplomacy comes in. I think our friends in the administration talk, I think, a very good game, and I think they're right about tough and hard diplomacy with adversaries. But we also need to talk to our partners and and allies, and those in Europe, uh, Russia, and, and China. This, I think, what was a strong point of the Obama administration in the last eight years was that we built an international coalition that exacted cost on the Iranian regime. We need to have those tools in place, as I think you've said many times and have written recently, uh, that this is not done. You know, the implementation day is just one day in one moment, but Iranian behavior needs to be uh, monitored closely, and not only monitored, but it has to be structured in such a way that they understand we have all of these tools at our uh, disposal. Um, On the unfrozen revenues, I think there's a lot of conjecture uh, here. I mean, I think Mike uh, uh, nailed it, and I think our Treasury Department, some of our intelligence agencies may understand what's happening here, but there's so many different moving targets in terms of what the Iranian regime w- uh, might or might not do. But let's be clear, even when it was under the harshest of sanctions, it was supporting some of the most malign actions and behaviors, uh, supporting people who wanted to uh, assassinate the Saudi ambassador in in this town. Uh, So that's why I think we all need to be vigilant and have stronger tools and these sorts of questions that I think have been raised already about has our response been too tepid uh, in reaction to Iranian provocations. These are the sorts of questions that I think we all in this country need to ask if we want this JCPOA to succeed in, in, in its objectives.
6: Thank you. Well, I appreciate both of your testimony. If I had more time, I'd ask additional questions about the Kurds and how we support our Saudi allies. Um, I've taken the initiative to meet with uh, both uh, British and French ambassadors uh, recently and to just reinforce my view that there are sanctions that remain on the books that we will enforce and that we intend to enforce and to meet with banking leaders from Europe to convey that same point. I think that is a message worth repeating over and over and over. So we don't find ourselves uh, at uh, counter purposes with our P5 plus one allies, and I agree strongly, we need a graduated menu of responses. I expect Iranian cheating to be initially marginal and initially modest, and if they, if they are not responded to promptly and effectively in a coordinated way with our allies, we will lose whatever advantage we may have gained through this agreement. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thank you. I appreciate the questions. I just interject that I think we've seen. Uh, the response of our coalition when the ballistic missile violations took place. It's gone. That was the flaw in this deal. And I think thinking that unless there's something so out of bounds that it's egregious that we're gonna be able to easily put that coalition back when everybody's in Tehran trying to do business right now is it's just not gonna happen again. I don't know how you could be more clear about a violation and yet have no response at the UN Security Council. So. Um, I I appreciate the line of questioning because I think it highlights the fact that there now is no coalition. There is no coalition. And to me that's one of the greatest flaws of this deal now that uh, they have what they want. Senator Perdue. Thank you Mr. Chairman. Um, You know
7: following up on that I'm very concerned about the lack of response to the United Nations. Uh, over the weekend, the U.S. did impose sanctions on Iran again on their ballistic missile program, and I, I am encouraged, but I am very concerned, as, as the chairman just alluded, about the lack of response, and I'd like to talk about that. <clears throat> also, we see continued testing in North Korea. We've had evidence in the past that Iran participates with Korea as observers or whatever. It looks to me like that we have one country testing, a rogue country, North Korea testing, uh, possibly for two countries. Having said that, um, <clears throat> I am very concerned that we, that we get after um, the people involved in that, and that is the sanctions, instead of going after individuals and these shell companies. you know, My suggestion was, and we put a, a letter to the President last week, I think 14 senators signed it, that uh, encouraged the administration to go after the, the, the foreign banks that are actually financing these ballistic missile tests uh, and the program, instead of these shell companies and individuals, we all know uh, how people can maneuver around those with paperwork, we saw that in the sanctions on, on the Russia uh, individuals uh, just in the last year or two. Uh, my question is, is what, what do you suggest we actually do to impact their ballistic missile program now that the coalition is absolutely gone? I agree with the chairman. Um, this is a practical matter as far as I'm concerned and uh, I'd like to get your thoughts about what the administration should be doing now, what should, we should be thinking about as a Senate to basically enforce the sanctions and, the, and the, the, the position we already have taken. Mr. Singh, would you start that?
2: Sure thing. Well, Senator, I agree with your concern. Uh, and I agree with uh, your concern about the lack of U.N. Security Council response. And, and just one thing I would point out, uh, maybe to add to your concern, Senator, is that so much of what we're talking about when we talk about the even the enforcement of the JCPOA, much less things that aren't in the JCPOA, like the missile uh, question depend on this joint commission where we have to have five out of the eight members of the joint commission on our side. Uh, well, in the coming year or two, we're going to have elections in France and Germany uh, and elsewhere. Uh, the EU is obviously not an elected body. Um, I don't think we can be 100 percent sure that we'll have all those folks on our side as they're pursuing business with Iran and so forth. And so I think we will need to be taking a, a lot of this leadership ourselves, unfortunately. It should have it been in the nuclear deal. There's no doubt about that. Missiles are part of a nuclear program, and we've seen that with North Korea. And I think to simply wave them away and treat them as a sort of separate matter uh, is the beginning of our, of our problem here. And so now we're left with the question of, well, what do we do as a rearguard action to stop this? I think it will need to be stronger sanctions. I think it can't just be designations, but it will need to be sanctions which um, are felt more strongly in Iran and, as you said, by those outside of Iran who are uh, abetting the actions that Iran is taking. Um, I think it'll need to be interdictions and export controls. One thing to bear in mind about implementation day is implementation day means that Iran has been certified by the IEA as having done its initial obligations. That doesn't mean that other countries, say in Asia and elsewhere, are themselves ready to implement those export controls, the procurement channel that are talked about, that's talked about in the JCPOA or in resolution 2231. And so part of this has to be to work with those countries to ensure that they have the controls in place, they have a strong presumption of denial. And they also have a a worry about the penalties they'll uh, incur if they fail to to implement that. Then I think there also has to be a ballistic missile defense component to this. I think if Iran is going to be taking provocative missile tests, I think it's very important that we show, as an alliance there in the Middle East, that we are well prepared to deal with that Iranian missile threat, to deter that Iranian missile threat by having a strong theater-wide BMD capability. And that requires investment from the United States. It requires getting our allies together in a complementary fashion to do that in the region.
3: If I could add to it, um, because I think Mike offered uh, a very cogent uh, list of moves that we can do on the sanctions front and then also on the defense with the ballistic missile defense. Um, But as I was saying before, our footprint, our, our military presence in the region is quite robust. There are things that we could do in terms of actions with partners in the region, whether it's exercises or similar responses, which we've not seen Uh, in recent years. We've seen before, we've seen in terms of of multilateral naval exercises in the Gulf where we bring a number of these countries and um, the Senator uh, Corker mentioned that we have no coalition left. The best way to reinforce a coalition to rebuild it is not only through these actions and sanctions and things that restrict their ability, but then also things that we can do in terms of calculated, very measured actions that send uh, a signal to the Iranian regime that you've done this, Uh, We're going to sanction you, but we're also going to put on full display what our capabilities are. And if you do this again, if you do this again, uh, you're going to see on full display what we can do with our partners in the region. Um, And again, I'm not advocating (laughs) war or anything like this, but the sort of signaling, the sort of games that Iran plays, as we saw with their photographs of our soldiers who went off course there, Uh, These sorts of things I think we should be uh, more inclined to look to in terms of responses, uh, as opposed to just, uh, I I share your concern about the lack of action at the UN. Well guess what, Uh, it shouldn't surprise folks that the UN sometimes doesn't do enough in terms of what it should do and its responsibilities. But there, my main point is that there's, there are things that the U.S. can do as the unrivaled leader in the Middle East with partners that can send messages to Iran and, and taking actions through naval exercises, through different exercises in response to these provocative measures, I think would be a very good thing.
7: So my last question, and, and this is a, a broad question, but I appreciate you both have spoken about this in your testimony before today and, and actually allude to this today. I mean. How close are we to the actual ultimate fear that most of us have, that we're gonna drift into an ultimate Sunni-Shia war in the region? Iran, um, Saudis, you've got Egypt sitting there, and then our intransigence, really, in Syria with Bashar al-Assad and Russia, given that we've created a second power vacuum in the region that Russia has now stepped into, to put on top of that, the 100 plus billion dollars of, of uh, cash that uh, Iran looks like they're going to have access to here in the near future, um, and we know that there are past activities relating to support of Hezbollah, Hamas, Houthis, and so forth. Uh, are we really dr- drifting in that direction, or are we actually racing in that direction uh, with our own intransigence? I'd like you both to respond to that quickly, if you could.
3: Senator, to a certain extent, we're already there if you look at the conflicts in Syria and in Yemen. I would hesitate as an analyst to simply classify it as just Shia-Sunni. I understand that paradigm, and I think it's relevant. I'm not dismissing it completely. But essentially, this is about power between different nation states and the leaders of those nation states, uh, Iran, Saudi Arabia, but then there's other layers of complexities. If you look uh, a little bit westward to Libya, you see also a government that is fractured under the weight of regional competition, not between Iran and Saudi Arabia, but between different parts of the Gulf Cooperation Council countries and Egypt and their different view on political Islam. So there are layers of complexity here. Um, But to a certain extent, we passed that point uh, uh, maybe several years ago. Uh, what I would say is that you know the US is not responsible though for this vacuum uh, primarily. I think our posture could have led to a different outcome, will lead to a different outcome if we have a much more assertive posture. Um, but the, the primary responsibility for this breakdown of the state system in certain parts of the region, uh, I think rests in the hands of the leaders of the region. Iran, as we've discussed here extensively, is a key part of the problem. I would also argue that many of the other Gulf uh, allies, uh, out of fear, out of concerns about Iran, out of other motivations, have also contributed uh, uh, to the problem. But a much more uh, coherent and, I think, robust presentation of U.S. aims towards the long term in the Middle East, I think, won't solve all of these problems, but could actually lead to a much more practical conflict resolution and a reinstitution of the state system that isn't simply just on the shoulders of authoritarianism and the sorts of you know uh, values that are run contrary to our system. That may seem too ideal, but I actually think part of that is the quiet discussion we need to have with countries like Saudi Arabia, uh, like Qatar, like all of the uh, members of the Gulf uh, Cooperation Council.
2: I, I agree with what Brian said. I, I, I wouldn't call it a Sunni-Shia conflict, um, and, and the reason is that some of our Sunni allies are almost as concerned about Sunni jihadism as they are about Iran. Uh, Iran, for its part, uh, is quite happy to support uh, some Sunni extremist organizations like Hamas. Uh, they've supported the Taliban in the past. And so sometimes the sectarian affiliation is a convenient way to, to extend influence, but I think it's not the only way. And I, and I think that you see that really what we're, uh, what we're engaged in here is this is a battle amongst uh, states and blocks of states for sort of uh, for, uh, preeminence in the region. And I think what you've seen is a breakdown of the regional security order. Uh, and you've seen a breakdown of states, as Brian has said. And that, that has caused this spreading chaos, and I expect it will spread more unless something uh, concerted is done to stem that. And I think we have a big role there. We have a big role in reconstituting a regional security what order. What should that role be? I, I think we need to be in the lead. In the lead doesn't mean we have to do it. It doesn't mean we have to take the burden on ourselves. But I think we have to be the organizing force. Uh, we have to be the one that, that, that convenes our allies, brings them together, helps set the agenda. Uh, And, and again, also helps them with building their institutions. Because I think that the states who have done best, who have fared best throughout all this, are those that have resilient institutions. And I would like to see us invest not only in trying to solve what's happening in Syria and sort of help build governments in Libya. That's very hard. That's going to take a long time, even in the best of circumstances. But let's also make sure we're investing in shoring up the institutions uh, in allied states that haven't yet succumbed to this Mm -hmm. chaos. Uh, Because I think that's going to be quite important for them. They have to be responsive institutions to their people as well, that, that we can't lose that as part of our policy uh, just because uh, of the problems that we face.
7: Thank you both, thank you Mr. Chairman.
1: Well once again, thank you for your, for your uh, being here and for your input. There is clearly a concern of our partners in the Middle East on their security as a result of the changing uh, strategies in the Middle East. We've heard that from all of our partners. We have no closer friend than the State of Israel. Could you just share with us what you think the United States should be doing post the Iran nuclear agreement to make it clear our unwavering support uh, for the state of Israel?
3: If I I can start with one, and this is in part born out of my own trips to Israel and the fact that I have some colleagues uh, at this moment who are on the Golan Heights looking down into the uh, chaos, and I was uh, talking with them just earlier this morning. One of the, this is gonna be a little tactical, but I think one of the main concerns that I have about the current environment, the post JCPOA implementation phase and what's going on in Syria and the actions of Hezbollah is a particular vulnerability for Israel along its northern border. Uh, I was there uh, last year several times, and I think there's more that we can do in the way that I think U.S. engagement with Israel over the last few years in support for the Iron Dome system and that, how that saved lives uh, from the rockets and missiles uh, coming from Gaza, uh, coming from the chaos in the Sinai Peninsula at times. Um, those sorts of measures, whatever's being discussed in the MOU and the 10-year plan, um, looking at how can we reinforce Israel's own security along that northern border. Because as we look at the conflict in Syria, uh, and also the complications in Lebanon right next door, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty there. And the fact that Hezbollah, Uh, Has used the last 10 years, since uh, uh, essentially 10 years since the war with Israel in 2006, to rearm itself with the support of Iran, with the support of Syria. I think one of the first things that I think we need to do is talk about what sort of weapon systems we can do, uh, what sort of intel platforms we can help uh, the Israelis develop to ensure that they know uh, what's going on and how to protect their citizens along the northern border.
2: Uh, I, I agree with all that. I'll say that based on my, my own recent trip to Israel, I think that things are getting back on the right track. The, the sense that I get is that um, as, as bad as the relationship has gotten, that's, that in recent months it's improving. Uh, and, I, and I credit the administration for that, and I think it's very important because this is our most important ally uh, in the region. Uh, and, I, and I agree with some of those things that Brian listed. Some of this is aid, not just the amount of aid and not just the MOU, but the sort of strategic planning that goes behind the aid. And that means we also have to have consultations at a high level. What do we do now about Iran? Um, we disagreed on the JCPOA, but let's make sure that we're hand in glove when it comes to detecting any efforts by Iran to cheat, uh, on responding to the missile threat, on responding to the, the proxy threat, which are all threats that Israel feels obviously much more keenly than we do given their geographic uh, position. I mean, then I think there's also something that's just a little bit more intangible, which is I think um, we need to restore a level of. Um, of sort of cordiality to the relationship. I think we need to act more like friends than we have in the past, fewer sort of public statements chiding the other, uh, and more sort of uh, sort of private discussions about the threats that we face and about the concerns we might have about uh, one another. And I think that also probably requires a trusted channel between the U.S. and Israel, which we haven't really seen, I think, in recent years. Uh, but somebody who can, uh, somebody, two people perhaps, one on each side, who can help to sort of address any concerns and disputes before they happen, and also help to make this type of dialogue uh, and strategic planning happen.
1: Certainly all the signals that we're getting recently is that that's being done, that there is a much better um, direct conversations, particularly among the sharing of intelligence information and strategies as it relates to common concerns in the Middle East. So I I, I think that was, a, I appreciate that response. Let me, let me move to a, a different subject, and. And that is what confidence you have in the announcement made by the Saudis of the Islamic Counterterrorism Coalition, uh, whether that, in fact, can be an effective partner in uh, our campaign against ISIL, whether that, in fact, can be utilized for more unity among our strategic part- uh, Muslim-Arab partners in the Middle East in, in our fight uh, for um, the uh, extremists that have... Uh, been so dominant in that region?
3: First, I wouldn't uh, dismiss the announcement in and of itself. I think it's an important gesture on the part of the new Saudi leadership. Um, And anytime there's an actor in the region that says it wants to do the sorts of things that we'd like it to do, I think it's potentially a good thing. But let me qualify that uh, overall observation with some analysis uh, informed by a trip to Saudi Arabia last month, where I spent about a week and met with many of the top Uh, leaders. Um, When this coalition was announced, Saudi Arabia caught many countries by surprise, including countries that were named in the coalition. Um, So whatever the aspirations that our friends in Riyadh may have here, the the simple fact of how the uh, rollout was flubbed uh, should raise some concerns about its implementation uh, and its capacity to do that. Second. Um, it's clear from the new Saudi leadership, its actions in Yemen last year and ongoing into this year, uh, its efforts while I was in Saudi Arabia there was a conference to try to unify the Syrian opposition to, to Assad yet again, that it's trying to be more assertive um, and, and play a role. Uh, but I think a lot of that uh, uh, those attempts will be constrained by two main factors. One, the regional fragmentation and the constraints that, both Mike and I have talked about, that there's only so much I think Saudi Arabia will be able to do. Um, Look at sort of the response to the rivalry and the skirmish between Iran and Saudi Arabia earlier this month. Saudi Arabia completely cut off ties and canceled flights. Some of its closest partners in the GCC had a much more modulated response. Um, so herding cats in the Middle East uh, because of the structure of these different views vis-a-vis Iran, other things will be hard for Saudi Arabia to do. The second constraint will be internal. And this is one I fear uh, we're going to be talking a lot uh, about more in the next year and beyond, is that the Saudi uh, leadership has, I think, a very interesting vision about how it wants to transform its own social contract. It understands it has a lot of problems economically and socially uh, inside the country. but. I think, uh, you know, my top line is yes. It's great that Saudi Arabia announced that it wants to form a coalition. We should discuss how this fits with the coalition that we formed a year and a half ago to fight ISIS. Um, but then we we should also keep our eye on the ball that a the region is still fragmented, and then b inside of Saudi Arabia, there are going to be major challenges that I think could impact not only what's going on inside of Saudi Arabia, but but what's going on in the region. I don't know if it will be instability, but there's going to be moves made by the Saudi leadership in their internal uh, dynamics that I think will create uh, new possibilities and also new uncertainties that we've not seen before. Mr. Singh?
2: I'll just, I'll just say I, I guess I would put a slightly more positive spin on it. I, I agree with Brian that there are real limitations here strategically. It comes to interoperability, as I mentioned before. But, but I think what this is a manifestation of, it's, it's a manifestation of our allies in the region uh, are increasingly acting, and they're acting together. They want to act together. Um, and I think that that's a real opportunity for the United States, um, because we can help with some of these problems that they face. We can help, for example, with the strategic planning. We can help with the interoperability. Um, we already are selling tens of billions of dollars of military goods to these countries um, uh, every year, every couple of years. Um, let's make sure that all works together. Um, I would like to see us uh, have more of a sort of regional security forum, regional security consultations with, say, the GCC, with Jordan and Egypt uh, as well, perhaps, in the room. That would be a real upgrade to how we do things now, where, Brian, as Brian has said, sort of the whole is less than the sum of its parts when it comes to U.S. security assistance and cooperation in the region. This is, I think, is an opportunity to correct that.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, and uh, Senator Menendez, Monday evening at five, we've got a classified briefing with administration regarding what just has occurred. Senator Flake.
8: Thank you, thank you for the testimony. Let me focus on uh, uh, the sanctions relief, what impact that will have uh, domestically in Iran, uh, along with the falling oil prices. Um, To what extent does the fall in oil prices completely outweigh uh, this sanctions relief? Uh, Has has anybody done an analysis, uh, oil at 30 bucks a a, a barrel uh, over a period of five years, what that will mean? Um, Mr. Singh, in your testimony, you talked about uh, there really hasn't been a domestic political benefit for the the so-called moderates uh, under Rouhani. How does this play out with falling oil prices?
2: Well, uh, Senator Flake, I, I think that the, there, there's been, I don't wanna say there's been no benefit for Rouhani and the pragmatists. I think Rouhani probably is, is popular and I think the, the nuclear deal was popular amongst ordinary Iranians. The question is, will that translate into say, a, a electoral triumph for, the, for Rouhani's faction in February? That's where I'm much more skeptical because you have a vetting process which is controlled by the Guardian Council, which is a, a more hardline body. Uh, and I think the Supreme Leader, historically, has not wanted his presidents to kind of uh, ascend or rise too much. When it comes to those falling oil prices and the sanctions relief, um, the, the best analysis I have seen is that, yes, Iran will get more by selling its oil on the market than it would have gotten, say, under the JPOA, when we were just sort of writing checks to the Iranians uh, um, uh, once every six months or something like that. Um, but it won't be much more, obviously, given the fallen oil prices. And, of course, all that Iranian oil coming onto the market, um, has probably depressed prices even further in anticipation of that. So it won't be nearly as much as they might have gotten um, had the oil prices been higher. But it will be better for them. Um, and it will, and, the, and more importantly, perhaps, the relief of the financial sanctions um, will spore, spur all sorts of other kinds of economic growth. Um, so they won't have, it won't be as good as it could have been, but I think that you'll still see strong growth in the Iranian economy. The problem is, for the Iranian people, that you know, this doesn't mean that it will suddenly uh, be a boon for ordinary Iranians because you have corruption. Uh, you have a lot of these sort of uh, foundations and others who will capture, I think, a lot of the economic benefits of the sanctions relief in Iran. The IRGC, I think, will capture a lot of the benefits of the, of the sanctions relief. And you also have uh, economic mismanagement in Iran, which has been there for a long time. So this might actually be a danger for President Rouhani and the pragmatists, that expectations are high, and what they're able to actually deliver might be low. I think
3: that was a a very sound analysis on the internal dynamics. If I could note um, one point on the broader oil market and the competition in the region. Um, It's not related to your question on Iran, Um, and I think Mike's answer, I think, responded well to it. I think there's a lot of... Uh, questions about what will the new Iranian leadership do or the current Iranian leadership do um, in the current context with the windfall from sanctions relief Uh, there's some indications that they need to spend on infrastructure investment um, and things at home there's a lot that they need to do in their internal economy but on the broader point of the drop in oil prices, it's one I tried to highlight in my testimony. I think it's very important when it comes to strategic dynamics in the region. It's one where I think we analysts need to think a little bit more, and you as leaders, think a little bit more about what this means for the broader Middle East. It means after 10 years of essentially very high oil prices where some of our golf partners had a great capacity to spend and they're using those resources now in play um, in conflicts in Yemen and Syria and other places, Uh, if we think a little bit ahead of the curve in the next year or two, the competition between Iran and Saudi Arabia, but not only Iran and Saudi Arabia, but Iraq, if it continues to get more oil on the market, um, is, is going to be, I think, tremendous, no matter what happens with the global economy. And that, I think, leads an environment of continued competition, not only in the military and security sphere and ideological sphere, but one where OPEC essentially has, has broken down. And what that means for us on our regional strategy
8: and then our global strategy I think is very important. With regard to the, the so-called windfall that comes with the post-sanctions regime here, part of that is due to the you know assets coming back that were frozen, but the bigger part is investment uh, in the Iranian economy. Uh, With dropping oil prices, you know, how much of that is not going to materialize? I guess I'm asking how much of that is going to be in the oil sector, will not be in the oil sector now with prices where they are?
2: So, Senator, I'm not sure I know specifically the answer to that question. I I think you will still see significant investment because there are opportunities to exploit. Um, uh, And there are opportunities not just in the oil and hydrocarbon sector, there are opportunities because Iran is a big consumer market. Uh, so I think you, you you do see considerable interest um, from firms to go into the Iranian market. Obviously, there's also a certain amount of wariness, not only because of the continued presence of sanctions, uh, but also because uh, it can be tough to operate in the Iranian market, whether because of the nature of oil contracts, which has actually recently been changed, although that's that's obviously quite new or the role of uh, groups like the IRGC and sort of the heavy hand they have in commercial activities in Iran. So uh, my sense talking to people is that firms in places like Europe and Asia see this as a big opportunity, a sort of untapped market, um, but they also approach it with real caution.
3: If if I could add, I think there may be two limits on what outside investors and international businesses might do inside of Iran. one is the simple practical matter that their banking system is outmoded and out out of date. It's not in sync with the international system. There's a very good article, several articles about this uh, recently in the Financial Times and other places. And then secondly, and this is simple and it comes back to the point of hostages and prisoners. The fact that this is a regime that has still detained an Iranian American who's involved in business, this sends sort of a signal that is this an environment where someone can go in and actually feel like they're safe and transact Uh, business. Um, I think that's a big worry that I think a lot of people will have. I think people in Europe, businesses in Europe, may have a slightly different view than American businesses. But I think the way that this uh, regime behaves, the way that the system behaves, I think will operate as a natural constraint on uh, the the opening of floodgates of investment inside of Iran.
2: I I would just add as an addendum, I think the message is actually a little bit different. I think the message is you can come do business in Iran, but you better have the right partners um, if you want to be secure.
9: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you to the uh, witnesses. Who's a bigger enemy of the United States, refugees from Syria or ISIL?
2: That's an easy one, Senator. It's ISIL.
9: ISIL. We're debating, just the reason I ask is we're debating a bill later today called the American Security Against Foreign Enemies Act. It's a bill to go after foreign enemies, and the enemies specified in the bill are refugees. Let me ask you a second question. Are are you aware, uh, in February, 11 months ago, the President sent to Congress a draft authorization for use of military force against an enemy, ISIL. There's not been a vote or debate about it in either house. Are you aware of any other instance where a President has submitted an authorization for use of military force to Congress and Congress hasn't taken it up for 11 months?
2: No. Not that I'm aware of, Senator.
9: I was at an armed services hearing early today to kind of switch topics, and Ambassador Crocker was testifying, and kind of going back and forth between it. And he talked about the Iran-Saudi Arabia tension that you guys have described in your testimony, and I'm assuming you talked about when I was gone. And he said it's really important that the US pick a side. Is there a danger in the US picking a side in a Sunni-Shia divide, in a sectarian divide?
3: Yes, there is a danger. Um, In my testimony and what we discussed here before, I talked about what I see as a central challenge in the Middle East, which is the fragmentation of the nation-state, and that certainly Iran and its support to subnational actors, non-state actors in Iraq and Syria and Yemen has contributed to that, but then the counter-reaction to some of our partners in the region have also had a deleterious effect on just the the notion of central authority. of of governments that are coherent. So this is where, uh, Mike may have a different view than I do, but I think we need to be very cautious about picking sides in particular conflicts that feed into this notion of Shia-Sunni divisions, that a better strategy would be to try to figure out ways to help reinforce the the nation state in ways that these governments, and this is a long-term vision, rule justly, that rule uh, according to international standards. We're so far away from that in Syria right now. And that's why anyone who talks to me about the Assad regime being a potential negotiating partner is ignoring the fact that that regime has killed more than 80% of its own casualties in in, in the conflict there. So I would be not persuaded by an argument that says we have to uh, pick sides. We have to be clear-eyed about it. And I think we have to be clearer than I think the current administration has been. Uh, about the U.S. role being assertive to try to marginalize extremist vo- uh, voices and forces that want to use sectarianism.
2: Okay, I I may give you a very similar answer, which is I, I actually don't see the conflict in the region as being a Sunni-Shia conflict. Uh, we just we talked about that uh, just a few minutes before. Um, but I do think that it's very important that we stand with our allies and that they get the feeling that we're standing with them. You know, Saudi Arabia is an imperfect ally. I don't think anyone here would dispute that. But even some of our best allies sometimes do things we don't like, but we still stand with them. Um, we're on the same page with them strategically. We share their interests, um, and we, we do a lot of things together over time, and, and I think that's what's important here. The, the, our allies right now in this region, and in some other places around the world, are questioning where does the United States really stand? They shouldn't have that question.
9: Mm-hmm. The, um, it depends on how you look at it, right? So you can, is it a Sunni-Shia divide? Is it an Arab-Persian divide? Is it? Just nation-state politics between Iran and Saudi Arabia? Is it revolutionary guard against monarchies? There's, there's a lot of different, is it worry about economic competition from the Iran? There's a lot of different elements to this. So it is, I think that's a, that's a fair thing to say. It's hard to reduce it to a single, this is a sectarian conflict, because it is, it is quite complicated. And so I guess the challenge for us is, how do we be a quarterback, to use your uh, analogy, or how do we actively engage without it making it look like we're planting our feet you know, on one side of a of a sectarian divide, probably accidentally, really, without trying to, it it has been perceived, just because of who we've been allied with in the past, that we have been strong for the Sunnis and kind of arrayed against the Shias. That was not our intent, but that's been the perception. So how do we then begin to counter that notion that we're taking a side in a sectarian divide and explore some of the other complexities? That That's the challenge that we have.
3: If I could say, I think one place to start would be to make sure that we're Um, placing a higher emphasis on those reliable and capable partners that are closer to our values. Uh, Israel certainly is there. I think the Jordanians, when it comes to inclusivity, their welcoming of uh, millions of refugees, uh, the Kurds of Iraq, any force and element, and this is the thing, we look at these societies, including Saudi Arabia and Iran, as these unitary actors. And the simple fact, as you know, you travel the world, is that there's so many different voices that I would call progressive voices. No more
9: unitary than we are. Yeah, yeah,
3: exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, But but in going to your first question about refugees versus ISIS as well, the values of inclusivity, of not looking at uh, individuals in particular categories of uh, Shia, Sunni, or Muslim, uh, and trying to ban them or bar them, Um, Working with those partners and building a much more coherent coalition than we have right now, I think would be one. Second, uh, we've talked about this a lot, is trying to help reinforce the state system in the Middle East in a way that reflects um, not only the power balance, but then also our values. Again, far afield, I think we're trying. In Iraq, uh, I think the the leverage and the tools of US assistance to try to get a different complexion of the Iraqi government was an important first step, but it's not been followed through on. Those sorts of tools uh, we've not used, I think, effectively uh, across the region, or as effectively as I think we could.
2: Look, look, I agree with that. I think that these alliances are based on shared interests, and that'll always be sort of really at the forefront of our relationships. Um, But I think that we can make the case to these allies that it's in their interest, and it's in our mutual interest, frankly, that their institutions, their political institutions, economic institutions, security institutions, uh, be inclusive and responsive to people, including minorities. And I'd make an analogy with, say, Eastern Europe and, and the Russian-speaking uh, minorities in, in Eastern Europe. Um, if, if you worry that these are vectors for Russian influence, uh, what you don't want to do is sort of marginalize them and cut them off. You, you want to make sure you're embracing them and and making and in- integrating them essentially into the state. Mm. And I think we can make the same argument here uh, when it comes to minorities in the Middle East. Uh, and I, look, I think we should make that, that argument uh, as sort of uh, forcefully and as candidly as we can, but they're going to listen to us, I think, only if they see us as an ally and as a friend. Right.
0: Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Uh, just to follow up, I, I will ask a, a similar question, and that is, uh, do you remember any time in history when a, an administration believes they fully have the authority to conduct a war, are conducting a war, that they send up an AUMF saying, if you guys would like to participate, you can, but we already have the authority? I think the answer is no. No. Senator Sheen.
10: Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you both for being back uh, before this committee. Um, I'm going to follow up a little bit on some of the issues that Senator Kane was raising because, like him, I was um, just at the Armed Services Committee, and so I'm sorry I missed your testimony, but one of, the, one of the questions or points that Ambassador Crocker made in that hearing is he said he was talking about the JCPOA, the hostage um, release, and he said, we have to recognize that we've not made a strategic shift in the Middle East with Iran. These have been transactional, and so it's been a transactional shift. So I wanted to ask you all, what would, how would you define a strategic shift? What do we need to do in order to accomplish a strategic shift with respect to Iran?
2: Uh, well, thank you, Senator. First of all, I agree with the premise. I agree with uh, what Ambassador Crocker said. I mean, we haven't seen a strategic shift by Iran. Um, It's it's important to bear in mind, as I I think everyone here would agree, in all these cases, um, none of them would have ever come to pass if Iran behaved as a responsible state. Uh, In most of these cases, uh, we're – in a sense, we're rewarding or or praising Iran for solving problems of its own creation. Uh, And that's always a trap with states like Iran. Uh, We see it with North Korea as well, um, where they create a crisis and then they de-escalate it and they get sort of praised for the de-escalation rather than uh, uh, punished for the original provocation. Um, What will it take to achieve a strategic shift in Iran? I think it takes something internal in Iran. They would really need to uh, change the way that they view their role in the region, the way they view their relationships uh, with their neighbors. Um, And I think that to the extent we can hasten that or facilitate that, it's by making sure that we are um, punishing uh, behavior uh, which we find destabilizing and irresponsible, um, but also um, engaging in rewarding constructive behavior. Um, it's, it's tough to pull that off, and I think we haven't pulled it off. My, my worry about our recent policy is that, you know, you can easily slide into this policy of a sort of serial accommodation uh, for fear of, say, derailing the JCPOA or undermining the moderates and so forth. I don't think that works, um, because I think that one of the reasons that President Rouhani is president of Iran is that he made the case in his campaign that, look, uh, the actions we've taken have caused us a lot of problems. Um, and he couldn't have made that case if we hadn't had tough sanctions in place, if they hadn't had to pay a price for what they were doing. And so I think it's important that when they do something that's irresponsible and destabilizing, that there's a price that they pay.
10: Mr. Kudula.
3: Uh, yeah, I would add to that. I mean, I think uh, the onus is on Iran and how it behaves in the region and in the world, for that matter, I think is, is, is I think, the key litmus test. But a second thing I would add is how it deals with its own people. Um, And again, I wanna highlight this because I think it's become out of vogue. It's not in fashion anymore to talk about freedom and democracy. And I started my career working with uh, groups like the National Democratic Institute. And I understand that change needs to come on the society's own terms. Um, But I think for us to really be able to even conceive of a strategic shift uh, towards Iran, you need to have a regime that operates differently, that rules more justly, respects the basic rights of all of its society, and the the republic of fear that is still in Iran right now is, is one that I, again, we, we should not be naive about the nature of this regime. Its actions in the region post-JCPOA, I think, speak volumes about how it still hasn't made a decision to fully rejoin the international community. But in my view also, uh, a decision to rejoin the international community means changes inside the country as well. I would never feel uh, confident about the reliability of a country like Iran, the way that it it rules right now.
10: I'm sorry to hear you say that support for freedom and democracy is out of vogue, because I think that is one of the underlying tenets of our foreign policy, or certainly should be. Um, I understand that earlier in the hearing, there was some discussion about efforts to address Iran's support for terrorist activities in the region and one of the things that is still pending in Congress is the nomination of Adam Zubin to be Under Secretary of the Treasury for Terrorism and Financial Crimes. Would it not be helpful for us to have, get that nomination approved so that we have Adam Zubin in place in the Treasury Department to continue to, um, to look at where money's being spent to support terrorist activities and to help us go after that?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, look I'd, I'd say senator I have a conflict of interest because I Adam's a former colleague and a friend um, but uh, I think he's a good guy and that's an important position I, I don't I don't know the nature of of the holdup but uh, uh, but I, I think it's fair to say it's he's politics done great, he's done great work uh, for the country
10: thank you I, I'm sure mr. chairman you would agree with that um, let me just I have a few more minutes and I just wanted to ask I, I know there's been a lot of discussion about the response to Iran's um, ballistic missile test and um, what's happening at the UN and what else we can do to sanction bad actions by Iran um, over this period of time of the JCPOA. So what other options do we have to um, respond to Iran's activities? I mean, we have our own unilateral sanctions. Um, I think it's probably gonna be a little more challenging to get the Europeans on board for sanctioning various activities. So what other options do you all think we've got as we are assessing what Iran may be doing that um, borders on violation of some of the tenets of the JCPOA?
3: Well, I wanna reiterate a point I made is that we could use our military footprint and our partnership with allies in the region to send signals back to Iran, whether it's naval exercises or uh, more robust brushback pitches. They do it all the time. And you know, I don't wanna sound like some sort of, I'm I'm talking about measured, calculated mm-hmm. responses that reminds Iran and the people in their military forces and the Revolutionary Guard and others that we are uh, the strongest force in the region with our partners. So the sanctions and Mike's testimony covers it very well. He went through, I think, very thoroughly, he may add to it. There are any number of steps that we can take, whether the UN acts or not, is uh, somewhat in, in our control if we're much more diplomatically forceful, but it depends on what Russia, China and others right. want to do. But there are things that we can do, we should have done in my view, in response to ballistic missile tests. And again, I don't mean an escalating into some sort of conventional war, but demonstrating that our presence is there and that, that uh, reminding Iran of that presence.
2: I, I would only add um, a couple of points. I have, I have a long list of sort of bullets in my written testimony, which go into specific actions we can take i just make two broad points, though. One is um, I think that it's not enough to rigorously enforce the JCPOA or prevent cheating, per se, because I think the JCPOA needs to be fixed. Um, I don't think that – I think we can do that without having necessarily to renegotiate the deal, Uh, but I think we we need to strengthen it in addition to uh, rigorously enforcing it. Um, The second broad point is uh, I've, I've often said that I think our efforts to counter Iran really need to start with Syria. Um, not only because Syria is perhaps the most important conflict we see, and Iran is uh, perhaps the most important player in that conflict in in quite a negative way, but because I think our allies around the world, especially in Europe, are looking for us to provide leadership on Syria. Because if if you're in Europe, if you're in France or Germany, this has become a domestic political issue for them. And they're looking uh, for an answer. And if that involves sanctions on Iran, I think we have a powerful case to make. Um, But so far, we haven't really stepped up with that strategy.
10: Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thank you. I'm going to close with some questions, but I know Senator Menendez had a few, and uh, out of courtesy, I'll let you go first and then uh, close
4: out. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, very much. Uh, Just one quick comment before my my three questions that I'd like to get your insights on, and this has been very helpful, a lot of uh, good uh, insights that you've both shared. Uh, On the Iran Sanctions Act, it just seems to me that if we're going to have the potential to snap back to something, you have to have something in place. And if you know what it took, not just to pass the law, but to then go through the whole process of global notification to countries and businesses, and then enforcement of it, it's a year, easy. Uh, So, at the end of the day, the suggestion that you can do, the Congress will be willing to do that at any time, is not as meaningful as the time frame that it will take to make it a value. And if breakout is a year, and if there is to be a violation, then the sanctions without being in force at the time will be meaningless. So I think it's very important to have something to snap back to, and I'll be pressing that issue. I want to, you've both been asked questions here, and I want to just see if I can get any greater thinking from you on, how does decision making take place in Iran as it relates to the decision on how to expend money? I, I, I think that's incredibly important, because that's going to, to some degree, dictate how much is this going to go for civilian purposes, infrastructure, the things that the most optimistic people who look at what Iran is getting say will spend on. Versus, you know, the Ayatollah, there are published reports of his vast holdings uh, that I'm sure he did, it didn't happen by accident that he acquired those vast holdings, uh, or that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard has some of the elements of, uh, elements of Iran's economy that they operate and that they're going to want to get a piece of the action, even if they were opposed to the agreement in the first place. Now that money's flowing, they're going to want to get a piece of the action. So uh, I I look at what just happened with the Guardian Council and the number of uh, people that uh, were excluded. Of the 12,000 candidates, about two-thirds who applied to run for the parliamentary elections were excluded. And uh, one of the reformists uh, actually said that their camp was overwhelmingly targeted with one saying barely one percent has been approved. Now we don't know whether that's just an anecdotal observation, but nonetheless clearly a fair universe of those who might want to see greater engagement in the world didn't seem to win out the day and if the legislature is part of deciding the parliament there how money is going to be spent and the Ayatollah clearly has a say because he has six of the appointees to that guardian council and then the other six elected by. The legislature, which has his voices as well, so then at the end of the day, uh, do you have any insights as to how, based on the past, the decision making about the expenditure allocation of money is taking place?
2: Well, Senator, I, I wish I could give you a clear answer to that. I, I can't. Um, it's something that I would also urge you ask the administration for a briefing on because I think it's an important uh, question. I, I will say that. If you look at uh, – clearly, the President of Iran has a strong role in sort of setting a budget and so forth. In his budget last year, he, he increased spending for military and security uh, matters. But there's clearly a lot of organizations which, as you said, are very powerful. These uh, Banyad Foundations, the IRGC, um, the, the, the broader intelligence apparatus, and the Supreme Leader's Office, um, which clearly have a, a role in that and, and uh, clearly do quite well, not just from the transfer of unfrozen assets but they also have a very strong role in Iran's economy and so stand to benefit from new investment and new commercial activity, uh, where you need to, as we've alluded to before, have, say, an IRGC partner working with you if you're a foreign investor coming into the country. Um, so, uh, so clearly, uh, there's a lot that's gonna happen that's not strictly on the books, not strictly in the budget, um, which is worth paying attention to.
4: Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this. Do you not think it's uh, fair Uh, I know one of the observations, I think Mr. Kutoulos uh, said that we should be supportive of a more robust budget for the IAEA so that the enforcement mechanisms, and I believe the IAEA needs the resources, but do you not think it's fair to have the Iranians either pay or at least contribute to the IAEA's budget because they created the circumstances that the global community said you're headed in a path towards a nuclear weapon and so the whole monitoring process is created because of the conditions that they created in the first place. So isn't it fair to seek the the Iranians pay either all or at least contribute towards that especially since they now have a windfall
2: of money? Well, sure Senator, I, I would I would love to see that. You know, in a, in a sense Iranians if they want to keep this deal have as much uh, interest as anybody else in ensuring that the monitoring and verification proceeds the way it's supposed to. I will just—I would just want to add to your point, though, that uh, yes, we should make sure the IEA has the resources to do what it needs to do, but I think we need to go well beyond that, I would say, including ensuring that we push the IEA to be forward-leaning in its requests for access and the way that it carry out, carries out its mission, because there will probably be some intimidation coming from the other side, no. uh, and we need to have their backs. Second is the next DG, of the IAEA, needs to be a person who really embraces this mission and is serious about it in the way uh, that I think so far D.G. Amano has been, but his predecessor wasn't, frankly. Um, And then third, I would say we can't just rely on the IAEA. I I really am concerned that as this is considered a sort of done deal, um, an issue of the past, that the funding and the attention and the resources within our government um, focused on this issue, on detecting cheating and things like that, will shift elsewhere. Uh, And I think that would be a big mistake.
4: Well, certainly the IAEA isn't an intelligence body and so this is everything we hope for in the implementation of the Accords is going to have a big intelligence element to make sure it takes place. Are you in agreement with Mr. Singh on yes. his comments? Yeah. And one final question. In the reality of Russia's bombing having succeeded uh, for the purposes of strengthening Assad, Iran seems to be pretty linked with Russia, maybe for different purposes, but pretty linked with Russia in their end goal for Syria. We, we sh- should we expect that Iran is actually going to be a constructive player uh, on helping us get to the uh, goal, the diplomatic or political solutions we want uh, in Syria, if it means uh, getting rid of Assad?
3: I wouldn't have high expectations um, on that front. I would not. You you would? would 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 not, not. okay. Yeah, I would not. um, Because I think actions speak louder than words and you see not only what Iran has done but then some of its proxies like Hezbollah and moving in different episodes in the Syrian conflict. So I wouldn't, would not have high expectations though I am on the record for uh, seeing what can be done if there's anything possible here because the the crisis in Syria, uh, we should have responded I think earlier and things have gotten out of control, so we need to test every possible way to bring an end to that conflict, even if it includes uh, uh, talking with and bringing Iran into the process as they've been brought into in Vienna. Um, Last thing I'd say on it though, and I wanna stress, is that no matter if we can get to some sort of foothold, some sort of endpoint in conflict resolution, the thing that we need to talk about when it comes to power sharing and political transition inside of Syria is the nature of the regime itself uh, that would be created afterwards, the nature of who's involved there. And we need to have a much stronger voice than I think we've had. Uh, We can't just leave it to the Saudis to organize the uh, anti-Assad coalition and we can't just leave it to Iran and Russia to shape the battlefield in the way that I think they have in the last four or five months.
2: i add one thing, Senator, which is, um, I, I agree, I have very low expectations for this Vienna process. I, I think that Iran and Russia don't have exactly the same aims in Syria. You could imagine, although I don't think it's likely, uh, Russia accepting uh, some outcome other than Assad being in charge, um, I think uh, Russia has, has its own motivations. I think Iran, Iran is strategically vital for Syria, I'm sorry, uh, Syria is strategically vital for Iran. Uh, And they need a compliant government in Damascus that will essentially allow them to use Syria as their sort of forward operating base. Um, I think one of the things that we need to try to do, although I think it's awfully difficult, is to the extent we can drive a wedge between Iran and Russia in this process. Because I I worry about a sort of uh, more strategic, deeper alliance forming between the Russians, Iranians, Hezbollah, uh, and Assad in a way that could really complicate matters in the region, say, for Israel. Um, could really complicate matters in the region for the Jordanians and others um, in a way that we haven't even seen yet. It's already quite bad, but I think it could get much worse.
4: Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman for your
0: question. Thank you, absolutely. Uh, just to close out, I, I wanna speak just a little bit or at, talk a little bit about the coalition we talked about earlier. Um, I, I think it was uh, wise of you to point out that we need to continue to work with our European, quote, allies relative to uh, to Iran. But to China and Russia, Uh, I mean, we understand how these violations uh, need to be dealt with. We understand that five need to be a part of it, but I don't think there's any question that Russia and China, by virtue of the Syrian conflict, but also what China's doing right now relative to selling arms, actually view Iran as an ally. Um, Is there any question about that now that this deal is being implemented?
2: No, I, I don't think there's any question about that. I think both Russia and China see Iran that way. In fact, the Chinese president will be in Iran in just a few days, the first leader to visit after implementation day.
3: Right. Mr. Cotillo, if you want to? Yeah, I, um, I agree. I mean, I think Russia has a slightly more coherent and robust approach to the region right now. My sense from China, and I was in Beijing last year, is that they're still trying to figure out – they have clear equities in Saudi Arabia with their dependence on energy resources there. But uh, perhaps they're shifting – uh, with Iran, I think they have a slightly different um, and not as clear view as Russia does. Russia, I think, has, has operated in ways that we understand what, who it backs and what, what it stands for.
0: But you usually don't provide defensive weaponry to people that are not your allies. Is that correct?
3: That's correct, yeah. So,
0: I, I just think that you know when we look at the region now, I mean, uh, there, there has been a, as you look at the group of countries who came together to negotiate this agreement. There's a real clear divide, very clear divide, that makes over time it even more difficult, if you will, when there are inconsistencies, problems, violations, uh, make it even more difficult, especially at the UN Security Council, to to really uh, crack down on those violations when you know you have two countries that were part of this coalition, quote, quote, uh, candidly viewing Iran as, as an ally.
3: I think that's right. And if I can go back to one of the points that I wanted to stress, which is so long as the region continues to fragment, that the state system continues to fragment and Iran is part of that, um, and that China and Russia are aiding and abetting that, at a certain point that harms their interests as well. That the structure, you know, the problem of their support to Iran, is that it'll allow Iran to punch far above its weight and do um, uh, conduct malign activities in the region, and that's why I think we need to continue to have this robust engagement uh, with both China and Russia. They're they're trying to play a role in the region, but I go back to my central point that they really can't rival what we have, what we bring to the table. But we need to be willing to use those resources and deploy them in a military and diplomatic strategy against them.
2: And I would just comment, Senator, that I, I think you're I think you're right. I think. China and Russia both had their own reasons, I think, for engaging in the P5 plus one the way they did. Uh, I think neither wanted to see a U.S.-Iran war for for perhaps different reasons. You know, China, in part because it gets all of its energy, uh, almost all of its energy from from that area. Um, But neither really want to see the flowering of a U.S.-Iran friendship either. I think that China, while it tries to sort of be friends with everybody in the region, uh, really sees Iran as its main strategic partner by virtue of its geographic location, by virtue of the fact that its really the only major power in the region which isn't allied with the United States. Uh, and so, so I do think that um, this will be a point of difference. And, of course, both, as I said, China and Iran share this sort of deeper goal of reshaping the international order in a way that uh, excludes us more.
0: And how important uh, are the economic ties that are being generated right now between our European allies on this issue, quote, quote? Um, How important is that economic relationship that's being developed now that uh, implementation day has taken place, and even before, really?
2: Well, I I think it's important insofar as, you know, on on the one hand, um, for for the Iranians and for those who have been advocates of this deal, they say, well, you have to show that the benefits come, and and that's what this is. But there's another side to that, which is having worked on the sanctions issue in the mid-2000s, Um, I think we forget just how hard it was to get that initial cooperation because of all these economic linkages. And so, look, if we had a great nuclear deal, I would say, yes, absolutely, this is wonderful. Uh, But because I worry that this is actually quite a flawed nuclear deal, and, in fact, we haven't seen the strategic shift that we wanted from Iran in the region, I worry that in the future this will be a real impediment to effective deterrence of Iran, to effectively fixing the flaws in the nuclear deal and preventing an Iranian nuclear breakout.
3: you want to add to that?
0: Um, I
2: share
3: some of those concerns, but I think it's still a little too soon to tell, um, that I think we should discuss sort of in a few months what we see, how, how Europe acts, and, and yeah. uh, to the point that I made earlier that I think our diplomacy and how we try to maintain unity with our partners um, to have a structure in place if Iran doesn't abide by this agreement to to be able to snap back.
0: Do we have any indications how robustly um, our European partners in this effort uh, pursued uh, ballistic missile sanctions at the UN?
2: I'm afraid I don't have an answer to that, Senator.
0: Yeah, I just, I think, you know, again, between the leverage now, uh, from my perspective anyway, being with Iran, uh, and the fact that we have Russia and China that deem Iran to be an ally, and we have our European friends deepening their economic ties, uh, I think it's going to be very difficult, um, very, very difficult in the future to push back uh, in any meaningful way against violations that take place. And I think your statements earlier about the fact that uh, um, what that will mean is a further fraying, if you will, further fraying of our relationships in the region, uh, the fact that you're here pointing out some of the things that we we need to do to make sure that we put as much pressure on the administration as possible to keep that from happening, and to have a much more coherent strategy, even though we've been there, it hasn't been, it's been more transactional, uh, has been important. So I want to thank both of you for being here today. Um, I want to thank you for helping us uh, in the past. I'm sure you'll be here in the future. If you would, we're going to keep the record open for uh, until the close of business Friday. If you'd answer questions uh, promptly like you always do, we'd appreciate it. Uh, And with that, uh, the meeting is adjourned.